What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. This week we speak to Jean-Marie Lascars, a literature professor at the University of Pittsburgh. She's recently written a fascinating book called To Obama, which is an annotated anthology of letters sent to President Obama during his two terms. Daniel was the producer of this week's podcast. Daniel, tell us what happened. So this week, we take a look at the Obama presidency through the prism of the thousands of letters that were sent to him during his time in office. And to do that, we have Jean-Marie Lascas. She's a distinguished literature professor over in America in conversation with Bonnie Greer, the American playwright and broadcaster. They had a really great conversation and we hope you enjoy. And if you do enjoy it or you don't enjoy it, please do leave us a review and ratings on iTunes. It gives us feedback on what you actually think of the show and helps other people find it. Now let's go straight to the discussion. Hello, I'm Bonnie Greer. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Welcome, Jean-Marie. And the first thing I'd like to say is, What's the American title of your book? Because this is the British title, isn't it? Yeah, slightly different. The U.S. title is To Obama with Love, Joy, Anger, and Hope instead of Hate and Despair. Why do you think the titles are changed? It's really fascinating. I don't know. Maybe um, in U.S., in the U.S., we're not able to quite cope with hate and despair on a uh, on a book. I don't know. We want... Anger and hope is a little softer. Yes. And maybe it's President Obama's kind of calling card, his brand in a sense. and Because he said that this is the book he loves. And I, I've seen that, that there, there are a lot of books coming out about him that have been out about him. He's written several of them, them himself, and he's coming out with another one. But he said this is the one he really likes reading. Well, you know, he really loved these letters. And this was his... This was his idea to read 10 letters a day, starting in the very beginning of his second day he was in office. And, um, you know, here we're putting together kind of an archive of some of them so you can sort of like see the nation through the past eight years through these letters, but also see what he was reading and what he was responding to. I have to make an admission that I told you earlier, I mean, this is the book I didn't want to read, not because I didn't want to read it. But because, in a sense, this presidency for me, and I've lived through a lot of them, this is the one that was most personal to me, being an African-American woman. 
especially, and from Chicago as well, where um, the state, uh, in the state that, that the president, former president, was senator. But I almost didn't want to let this presidency go. And so in a way, I didn't want to read it, but I'm glad I did. And that's so interesting to me. If you, you know, So you didn't want to read it because you didn't want to face that he was gone, is that it? And you thought that this would remind you? Of what you lost. Mm, yes, yes. Interesting. Have and what, you heard this before? Well, um, I have had the experience myself before where it was hard. You know, I started reporting this while he was still in office and we didn't know what the outcome of the 2016 election would be. I was there on election day. So, you know, none of us knew. <laughs> All, only thing we knew was that administration was over, um, but we didn't know where it was headed. So there was a goodbye quality anyway during the during the research and the reporting um, and I think now the country's so very different that that goodbye is is maybe more stark. But I think it's all the more reason to remember what we had, frankly. Let, let me ask you this, and, and this is like backwards from the way I wanted to conduct this interview, but if I don't say it, I'll forget it. Um, I saw a panel today on television of independent voters. And for people who don't realize it or know it, when Americans register to vote, most Americans are independent. They're not, uh, they're not Republicans or Democrats. They are independent. And the independents are the ones you look at uh, and see what they're going to do. A lot of them broke for um, uh, Trump, and they were Obama Democrats and Obama Republicans who uh, broke for Trump in 2016. And, you know, some of it had to do with just feelings that people had about Hillary Clinton. And, you know, but, but, but the further feeling that I got that I was very kind of moved by is that these independents said that they were embarrassed now, um, not only by their choice, but by the way the country was going. They were, they thought, they really wanted to give a shot to a non-politician. They wanted to see what was going to happen. He couldn't be that bad because, you know, he's all campaign bluster. He was a businessman. They just wanted to give it a shot. And now they are deeply traumatized and embarrassed. And they say they feel every day they wake up and they think, what's, what's going to happen today? Do you get that sense of America like that? Most definitely uh, the sense of what's going to happen today and the kind of constant barrage of surprise and shock hitting us day after day after day. It's a very different culture right now. It's just so different. And we didn't, I think, um, sometimes I think we were a little bit asleep before. You know, I think we, those of us who supported Obama, or even if you didn't, there was a sense of, well, somebody there isn't, there's a grown-up in charge. Someone's, yeah, they got it. They got it. Um, and that sense is, now we're like, whoa, there's a there's a real unrest, definitely. So, um you know, depending, no matter what you think of the policies, I mean, and I agree with you, a lot of people just wanted to change. They just want to try something new. That's understandable. And and in a sense, or not in a sense, for real, uh, the republic is set up so that you can literally come out of the backwoods and be the president. I mean, it's not about you being having the, the deep political pedigree, say, that Hillary Clinton had, deep political pedigree, uh, or anyone else, really. This was a guy, Trump, was just somebody who came out of a, you know, whatever, and let's give him a shot. That's kind of like what America is about. And now these independents are saying they are just 
really shaken by all this and really frightened. Well, here's one of the things. Yes, that is kind of what America, you know, that's the American experiment. Anybody, it's it's open to anybody. Anybody can vote for anybody, you know. Um, but here we are now, you know, this is why I think for the, for me this this book and working on this project really hit home is like the notion of democracy and and participating in in the democratic way of life is that you get to talk and you get heard. You know, your vote counts for something, but so does your voice um, and so do your opinions and that you yourself matter. That I really took for granted until I started working on this project. You know, so much of these letters, it was like these people just had something to say and they were just writing out of sometimes just common desperation of what was going on in their lives. And the notion that someone was on the other side of it listening, that they felt that they mattered, really creates a different kind of culture than a culture where you don't feel that you have a voice or you don't matter at all. And I feel like that's a lot of what was going on in those last eight years during the Obama presidency that we didn't even know. You know, that there was a sense of like you, whether or not we agree, you matter, your voice matters. I feel like that's what's going on in in. That's what we see when we – when I read this book, i like, oh, yeah, individual – the individual matters. And I think that's why people cry when they read it. It's, it's you know, I, I, I was thinking as well, um, you are what anybody would say if we're going to label people. You're one of the elites, maybe one of the coastal elites. You know, that's the new word, you know, with the – you're a distinguished professor. You're a, a, a New York Times best-selling author. You contribute to the New York Times. You've been shortlisted for awards. You published a lot of books. And the other thing that fascinates me about you: you live on a farm in Pennsylvania, which is about as red state, at least as a label as can possibly be. How do you balance both of those things? How do you make them work? And how do you see yourself? Because, again, putting those credentials down the table, you're from two different – you're working in two different worlds. I'm so glad you are pointing this out because it is true, this sort of split identity. I'm not the only one to say this. I'm sure the life that I lead, you know, I do not identify as a coastal elite at all, although everything you just said is absolutely true. 100 percent coastal elite on on, on paper. On paper, Yeah. Um, but, the, you know, I live in, in Trump country, absolutely. And and you said red state, Pennsylvania. Well, we're red now. We weren't. Um, and in the region I live in, the county I live in, um, one of the things that happened to me as a journalist was a crisis that I felt in the 2016 election. And everybody had a sort of a, like, whoa, how did we miss this? I felt it profoundly. These are my neighbors. How did I – how was I not listening? How How did I – you know, talk about listening. I wasn't tuned in. To, to what so many people were needing and saying and feeling left out. So that bit going on right now is like, what is the role of a journalist? For me, it's like, whoa, crank up the listening lady. What have you been doing? And I mean, the projects that I'm working on now, well, this project, certainly. And, and then going forward, too, it's like, wait, let's tune in here. What's, what's really going on? What do you hear? Well... I hear a lot of of feeling left out of the conversation. You of, personally. Mm, yeah, not mm, No, just something is left out. I hear that well now 
now I hear people missing um, a level of civility and a level of discourse, no matter what their what their um, what their politics may be. Um, the there's a sort of um, a longing for um, can we stop tweeting at each other? Can we can we listen to each other? So it's kind of funny. It's like kind of like through a looking glass of well, none of us are listening. We're all shouting. I hear a lot of that. Like, can can someone stop us from shouting <laughs> at each other? And I feel like in America, that is right now, right now, where we all are. When, uh, to Obama with love, joy, hate, and despair is is put together in arc in arcs of time, and and the letters go through the entire two terms of the presidency. Did you notice anything in terms of, say, from 2009, say, to 2011, when he was new and and it was all new, to the end? I mean, did you see an arc or a shape? Most definitely. The early letters, 2008, 2009, you know, the economic crisis that hit <laughs> uh, certainly the U.S., the, the level of desperation— in the letters, the people who are sending in their mortgage payments, the banks are collapsing. There's the loss of faith in the Catholic Church, like all of this sort of the institutions are letting people down. And that was stark, you know, that happened abruptly for people. And you see that in the letters, like the the, the floor just fell out from underneath me. And writing to this new president, like, okay, we're giving you a shot. We don't really know you. We're giving you a shot. You've got to do that. You've got to do something. You've got to help. That kind of those cries for help early on. Now that shifts. Um, cries for more specific help start occurring in 2011, maybe um, gay rights and a lot of the sort of the um, the disenfranchised folks. Lots of that kind of mail um, coming through and then getting responded to. I mean, these were not conversations that were happening in the media. Some of that, some of that LGBTQ rights stuff, not quite happening with Obama in the media, and then all of a sudden it opens up, and you see people writing, "Thank you, thank you for recognizing me. I'm just now getting married. I've been with my partner for 30 years. We're finally able to get married. Or I'm a soldier, and I've been married to, you know, I've been a gay soldier all this time, and I have had to just hide." And now I can, because you've repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I now can be who I am publicly. Thanks. A lot of that pouring, outpouring. And then towards the end, you start seeing just sort of like more legacy, like either I still don't agree with you, I didn't vote for you, I still don't agree with you on policy, but by God, you're a nice guy. You are a good dad. You know, like I misjudged you. You're at least someone who has brought dignity to this office and maintained it. A lot of that kind of legacy stuff starts happening towards the end. But, I mean, it's really a – you feel like you can live through the eight years by looking at this mail. Did you – how did you get how – did, how did you get access? I mean, just a technical question. How did you get them? Well, the the, the this all started as a, an article in the New York Times Magazine while, while as I said, Obama was still in office. Um, so I was there in the mailroom. And um, – spent a lot of time just sitting with the mail and the folks who, which was a whole piece of the story, the people who, who worked with this material. Um, and then after the story came out, it got, it got quite a, it got quite an, 
a huge response, I think largely because it was it was um, published on Inauguration Day. So the contrast was so very stark. Um, but the Obama people who were leaving, you know, were really glad that this mail was getting noticed and um, kept the conversation going with me. So I was able to have access to the to the archival material. This is for me to read these. It's um, I think it's a microcosm. Well, it is a microcosm of the United States in the sense that I think most people who don't know the United States and most people in the world don't know the United States, don't know what, in a sense, a deeply romantic country it is, how, as Americans, I always tell people, uh, I've lived here half my life, but I know how American I am because each of us has a narrative in our brain about what our country, what the country is. And we live that narrative. We try to live that narrative. We try to elect people who live that narrative. It's a deeply romantic, deeply emotional attachment to the country. Do you think that that attachment uh, to an ideal, is that still there? Because in a sense, what you're saying to me at the beginning and what the letters sort of brought out to me was that something has either been grown up or something's been broken down. Well, let, let's just get back to that. It's so interesting that you're saying this about this romanticism. It goes back to the title <laughs> here in, you know, here it's uh, hate and despair. And in the U.S. it's anger and hope. Um, you, no, I don't think that's ever going away. I don't. I think we're, I think it's for the first time um, in my lifetime, certainly, challenged that sense of that sense of hope and optimism is so challenged by the current administration so maybe that's different but you know i i i think that um we still want to believe that in the american dream you know that that if you if you believe <laughs> believe in yourself and believe in your kids you know you'll make this work we're going to make this work. I do think that – I don't think that that's ever going to get uh, just finally destroyed. But I think it's it's soured right now. I'm watching you um, and um, I'm watching your eyes. And, and while you're talking, I, I can see you kind of weighing up what you just said in a sense. that I mean, that's your journalistic mind as well. You know, you're weighing up what you just said because – it seems to me you're not quite sure. Well, it's I see I see um, you know I'm researching this one little town in Western Pennsylvania, for example, a forgotten town, you know, of an old steel town that no longer has any reason to exist. The factories are all gone, the plants are all gone, the people are just hanging on for what? You know, like there's nothing there anymore. But they believe in their town. They believe in the idea of this community, Denora, PA. You know that they believe in it because. It's theirs and it's home and it's we can't leave it, you know. We've got to we've got to hang on and and it, and there's a sense of that in in the U.S. too. The problem though, where where you feel this kind of like sadness, it's with the disenfranchised communities, with you know the 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 young immigrant who comes to this to America with a dream and who can't even get in the door anymore. You know all of that stuff where it used to be. Like my grandparents came from Lithuania with nothing um, 
to, to, to open a butcher shop because they had no life anywhere else. That stuff is so threatened right now at our borders that that's where I get really scared. If you've made it this far into the podcast, you're obviously enjoying it. So please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes so that more people can find out about the Intelligence Squared podcast. And now back to the show. You know, the more and more you talk to me, and I don't know if our most of our audience would recognize it, but the more and more you talk to me, the more and more I hear Pennsylvania. And I know, I, I, I know you know the farm. I know you know a farm. Um, and I mean, I come from the south side of Chicago, and my family came from the south. So I'm hearing your authenticity. I'm hearing that you know this group of people who actually— voted for Barack Obama twice, and they chose Trump in 2016. And I guess in a sense, the book, what the beauty of the book, and I want to stress the book is deeply beautiful, it's lyrical as well, to read ordinary people, the way you've organized it as well and got it together and and put it. But there's something that you know uh, that a lot of people who are running the country a lot of the people who are reshaping the country don't know, and you know those people who voted for him, for Trump, and why they did it. And how does that, in a sense, inform you as a journalist and being in New York City in the sort of the coastal elite heartbeat of America where, I mean, I'm a former New Yorker as well, so you know what that kind of life is. How does all that inform everything that you do, in a sense, your deep knowledge of these people in there? And their feeling and their and where they stand. Where what it does for me personally as in, in as an as a journalist, um, is force me to go places I am scared of. So that, for example, things that I just don't understand. And for example, guns. I don't understand the American fascination with guns. And there are plenty of them where you are. They're everywhere where I am, and they are everywhere, you know, that's a piece of Amer- of America, and that is a voting block that is not gonna vote for any Democrat, because it's threat to the point where it's threatening their their right to have these guns. Now that is a place I don't understand. So what do I do? Do I do I debate it and argue it and on and on and on as we do, as we do, as we do? Maybe, but that's not really probably gonna for me help. Um, what I need to do is try and go there and understand it. So let me try and understand that world. Let me go to a gun store and work behind the counter. And sell guns, which is I did for a story, um, so that I can understand what is going on. Why are all you people want all these guns? What did you find out? Oh, my gosh. It was so interesting. It was, what was so interesting about that experience was I did get it. Like, I actually was able to get it mentally and even emotionally for about a day out of about three weeks. And I remember writing home, emailing my editors back in New York. Like, I get it. And trying to explain it to them. And they're like... What's happening to you? What's your, they've, they've gotten to you. What's happened to you? Um, and I, tried, I had to try and articulate. No, no, no. These are not bad people. These are people who have this sense of this is how they need to defend themselves. This is how they feel this is the only way that they can defend themselves. Against what? Oh, against pers- against violence outside of them. They can't depend on the police force. They don't trust them. They can only trust themselves. They don't depend on the They can't depend on the government. That might be coming after them too. This kind of like... Mm, I would view it maybe now um, outside of it as paranoid, but that's not their sense of it. You know, it's like I can only rely on myself. It's American. It's self-reliance. 
And it comes down to that's my gun, you know. And so I need to understand that, I feel like. And I not only need to understand it, I need to try and communicate it in a, in a story or in a book or someplace. And that is hard. To me, that's the highest challenge, that there's no bridge between these two worlds. I, I've, like I said, I've lived here half my life. And, and the thing that I've noticed about my native country, which I don't think I would have known if I lived there, stayed there for, for the last 30 years, Americans have a deep fear of home invasion. And that's not only literal, but it's existential. And it kind of fuels a lot of things. That's so interesting. It's true. Home invasion down to your own home. And your country mm-hmm. as your home. And your and your country. And, yeah, so close those borders. There's a threat. There's always a threat, a threat, a threat to what we are. Um, and it, it plays out in all these ways. And it plays out in an election where it's – where the mantra is close down those borders. Everybody, you know, get safe. Get safe and keep it the way it is or get back to the way it was. That was the right way. That is a – I don't know why we have such a strong sense of that. It's very deep. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's maybe the one thing that – I mean, my dad kept guns as well. and We found a lot of guns after he died. We didn't know he had these things in the house. Um, and it isn't something that people outside of America actually get. And it's an interesting thing to me as well because Barack Obama is the opposite of everything that an, an ordinary American would sit down and think about. He was born in the last state in the Union, and pe- there were even people saying he wasn't even born there, but he was, off the coast of the United States, an island. Um, he, uh, his fa- his, on his mom's side, he's, he's 100% the kind of people who voted for Trump if you look at them on his mother's side. And then the other side is this incredible uh, 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 mix of people from from Kenya, academics and all of this. And how did he get elected? How did this happen? Because he's coming from George W. Bush, who was an aristocrat, basically, a lot of people, you know, who disguised himself as some down-home dude. How did Obama happen? Well, it feels like a fluke right now, doesn't it? Because when yeah. you look at kind of like the threat, as we're saying, of the outside invader, the other, that is, I mean, that is so other, you know, and that is where supposedly America is going to, you know, in the in the Trump voter mind, that's, you know, that's the problem is that the other is taking over. I mean, that's what the, the you know, they that's how they treated him during his presidency, you know, that you know, this guy's, you know, that was Trump's whole campaign built on the fact that he was the the guy that called that that started the whole birther thing so you know the, the these are really two opposite approaches to how to how to um grow a country and grow a democracy the you know the one where it's close the borders keep it the same keep it keep who we are keep our identity here um and the other like whoa become part of the global citizenry you know that version of can America even be that? And that's aspirational. Yes. A lot of folks wanted that. Yes. Um, and we tried it, and I think we thought we were going somewhere. Um, but then you push back. Because he thinks, he said that he thinks he was too early. I've seen that quote where he says, maybe I came too soon. Yeah, I, I saw that quote too. 
I don't think so. I think we needed to. Um, it's kind of like you know, it's the push and pull and push and pull where you're where you're opening the door and you're peeking out. You know, that maybe that presidency was that we're we're opening the door and we're peeking out into the world and saying, yeah, we can be part of that global citizenry. Yes, we can. We can be part of that. And you're like, no, 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 never mind. And you go back into your room and you're because you're scared. I feel like so much of it is like that. It's about borders. What do you think pushes a person to write to the president of the United States? Put a stamp or email. What makes somebody do that? And that's that's how this whole project started was that question. I'm like, who? I had no idea that there were 10,000 letters a day coming into the White House saying, Dear President Obama, who are all these people? Why are they writing? To me, it would be like writing to Santa Claus, you know? Um, that was my first question, really going into it. And what you find, first of all, is you sit in this mailroom and it's every kind of person imaginable. Every kind of person imaginable writing any kind of thing you can imagine from ch- from the child saying, here, check my homework to uh, someone railing on on immigration policy to, hey, dear President Obama, my father just almost committed suicide. He was a soldier and I had to save his life and I just needed you to know that. Those were the most kind of like crazy kind of um, – common almost letters where it's just like moments of desperation when there's no one else to write to. That's a lot of the mail that I read. So he's the end of the line for a lot of people. Even though you don't even think, I mean, everyone starts with the same thing. I know you'll never read this. I mean, almost everyone starts with that line. No one's expecting. No one knows he's reading 10 letters a day. That is not, was not common knowledge. Um, it was just then all of a sudden they're getting a letter back. <laughs> and it's Barack Obama saying, I, I heard you and I'm rooting for you. That's extraordinary. What happened, what do you think happened to President Obama himself as a result of the letters? Do you think they changed him? Do they shape him? I I mean, I talked to him about this, and he really was um, clear, um, first of all, about why he did it. The notion of, uh, his notion of empathy as having a role in democracy, where it's because we're willing to listen to one another that we can build communities and that's how it's all that's, – that's what it's all sitting on in his mind, his political philosophy. And then eight years later, having done this day after day after day after day, the surprising thing for him, he said, was that it was sustaining to him, that these letters were sustaining, that it kept him um, from becoming um, jaded. It kept him from becoming, um, you know – Someone who took it for granted what his role as a president was, as, a, as you know, serving a nation. The letters kept him grounded. As um, founder of, uh, and director of the Center for Creativity at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Pittsburgh, I'm sorry, at the University of Pittsburgh, as you're talking, I'm thinking of Ulysses S. Grant, who everybody hated. And then he wrote his his memoir, and he talked about the war, and they loved him. Lincoln, who they hated, and then he dies, and then suddenly, you know, he becomes one of the saints. JFK, who they hated, and then he dies, and suddenly, you know, profiles and courage, and all that comes out. LBJ starting to be reevaluated. I mean, my generation hated him, and then suddenly we start to see this guy was a titan. Uh, uh, Ronald Reagan starting to get reassessed. Uh, maybe Bill Clinton will, maybe even Richard Nixon. Um, how do you see, to your students, how do you see Barack Obama, do you see 
something that will happen even in this man's lifetime. He's quite young, relatively speaking. Uh, Will we see something? Will we know something that we don't know now about him? Well, honestly, this is one of the reasons that I really felt like I wanted to do this book, because this is the kind of... These letters and this conversation that was going on all those eight years that you didn't even know was going on, that you weren't even aware of, that stuff is what lasts. That stuff, that's stuff for historians to hold on to and look back at. Like, wait, what was going on? And I feel like the messages in here are lasting messages of kind of like aspirational, here's how, it, here's how a democracy can work. Here's how we can listen to one another. Here's why individual voices matter. These kind of like larger messages, I feel like is a that's a that's a legacy that that he will have that we that will be undeniable. Whether or not you agreed with any particular um, policy initiatives that 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 he was you know spearheading, um, this was a president who chose to listen. Now. What do we think about that in our leaders? I think it was going to be a um, an undeniable fact. Is there a letter in there in the book? Because you 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 put it together, you you chose. Is there something in the a letter? Because I have one that I accidentally opened up. Because, like I say. This is the book I don't want to read because I thought I'm going to burst into tears, I'm going to really be upset. Uh, and I did burst into tears. And I really was upset. But it's such an incredible sort of putting together an archive of everything and a remembrance and reminder of this extraordinary presidency, which if you had written it down and said it was going to happen, nobody would think it ever would. Uh, is there a letter, one or two in there, that for you exemplifies something about this presidency about your own work, what you discovered, you going forward after being the, the author of this book? Is there anything that sort of jumped out for you? There's so many. And every mm-hmm. time I get asked this question, I come up with a different one. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that invalidates the one I said before. Um, just even as we're talking today, one of the one of the letters that that really jumps out at me is a letter from this guy, Patrick Holbrook from Cincinnati, this is a late letter, a 2016 letter. He's writing at the very end. In fact, in fact, it was in the last batch of, um, you know, these 10 letters a day that Obama got. It was the last batch he got on the last day of office. And here was this guy writing, saying, I didn't vote for you and I still wouldn't vote for you. I don't actually d- agree with your policies, but I want you to know that I misjudged you and and I appreciate what you have done in the presidency, what you have done as a model of of grace and dignity. And I just want you to know I appreciate that. Now, why did that guy write that letter? You know, that to me is really moving that maybe you did have a change of opinion, um, but that you would sit down and say, I need this guy to know that really says a lot to me about America, you know, that that there, that there are people just sitting in their homes, everyday people, Saying, I gotta, I gotta tell my president something. I got, I gotta correct the record here. Still don't agree with the guy, but I need him to know this. I don't know. There's something about that, that level of kind of like intimacy that you could feel with your president. I don't know if that would happen in a lot of other countries. You know, I, I'm glad you said that because one of the things, again, the longer I am away from America, the more I, I realize 
that there is a decency in most Americans, and, and I would use the word decent. Um, there is a decency sort of point that they can be railing and screaming and ready to shoot you or whatever. But if you can find that point in most Americans, then it's all right. They'll let you pass. You can go your own way. You won't be harassed. You won't be bothered. You can even be on somebody's land. You can even come in somebody's house. If you hit that point that most Americans have, and it seems to me that in reading your book, Obama tried every day to hit that point in every American on an individual level and a collective level. It is, and that point is um, you are okay just as you are. I, you know, it sort of like gets back to the Mr. Rogers neighborhood. I like you just the way you are. There is a, there is a bit of that in Obama, which is, you know, you have value just by being who you are, no matter what your opinions are, no matter what your status is, no matter who your family was, no matter what your tr family tree is, no matter what your race is, you have value just as you are. That is a message, I think, in these letters, in this mail, in this conversation. And that's, I think, why that letter sticks out to me, because here's a guy who doesn't believe in this president, but writes to tell him that, like, I value who you are just because of who you are. That that's that's an extraordinary sort of um, human connection. You know, like I said, Jean Marie, this I didn't want to read this book <laughs> because I I just thought I just I don't have a fit. Anyway, what I decided to do was let me just open it up, and whatever my eyes fall on, that's the one the letter I'm going to read. I have no idea, and of course, this is the one I chose because this book tells me you must read me and. This is the book. This is the letter I chose. I can't believe I did this. Anyway, it was from Miss Melina S. Submitted 7-15-2013, 5-16 p.m. EDT. Message. Dear Mr. President, Today I went to my Kaiser Pharmacy to refill, to refill my birth control prescription. Automatically, I gave my Kaiser ID card and credit card. The pharmacy said to me, no copay, and gave me back my credit card. I slid it back over the counter to the pharmacist and said, it's $30. She slid it back and said, you don't have to pay copay. I asked why, since when? I was puzzled and sure this was a new employee and she was doing something wrong. She said, it's the new health care provision. When she said that, it clicked. I had been hearing about it. I knew about it. But here it was in action, and I could not believe it. I kid you not. I felt emotional right away. I felt something, like an injustice was turned, like a wrong was made right, like when you hear an apology, you know, you deserved. I suppose can't describe it very well in an email, but I felt something so strong that I had to write to you right away and say thank you. Thank you for standing up for women. Thank you, thank you, thank you for standing up for women. I know it's a small thing, but it's so big to little old me. What it means and what it stands for then is hope. It's huge. Things can change. Women do have a friend in politics. And I appreciate you so much 
for doing the right thing. Really, truly thank you so much. Sincerely and respectfully, Melina S. That's the one I had to open up on. Oh, I love that letter. I love that letter. Doesn't it Doesn't it get you, though, that, well, for everything about it, but just even the fact that she sat down to do that then. I just To me, that tells me so much about not just America, but certainly, but also specifically about that presidency, you know, where you would feel, I don't know, the more I talk to, like, people in this country or other interviews I'm doing outside this country, it's like everybody's like, no one has that relationship with their elected official. You just wouldn't do that. Number one, you wouldn't do that. Number two, then hear back, say, thanks for writing, <laughs> you know? thanks for writing, Melina, <laughs> President Obama. Yeah. So I think that's um that's what was going on all those eight years, and that's kind of what the journey I went through as I unpacked all this. And I love that you didn't have a specific letter that you like, you know, wanted to read like a certain time or something, because that's how it was in the mailroom. And I opened it up literally, and this letter fell open. I thought, oh, this is the one, right? I have to read it. And it's so full of everything that we're going through right now. So full of this sort of battle that women are having. So full of the um, the whole battle over health care, um, which in this country people don't understand. People are bankrupt if you get sick in the United States. You just everything is gone. You're in the street. Literally, you are in the street. Um, and so it is so full of that. Jean Marie, is there any last thing you want to leave us with uh, about this magnificent book and? Anything I haven't touched on you want to say? Oh, I just think for for me, the, the lasting message that I have, especially now we're heading in, in the U.S., we're heading into the midterms and everyone's all fired up about the election. And I just feel like, you know, we had this. You know, that's what this book is, is like show you what we just had. It wasn't that long ago. This is what we had. Whether you knew it or not, we had this <laughs> kind of uh, relationship with our president. And um, we could have this again, this kind of relationship with our elected elected officials. This is why we vote. Like this what you're what you're this is what you're picking. You know, like elected officials who have an opening to voices like Melina S. You know? Do you want that? You can have that. That's why you go vote. That's where your voice is gonna next be heard. So to me that's what it is. It's like get out there and and um participate in the in the democratic experiment. Well, I want to thank you so much, Jean Marie Laskus, for To Obama with Love, Joy, Hate, and Despair, published in this country by Bloomsbury, and very beautifully published. And, and thank you very, very much. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, And whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? 
To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.